You're listening to 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia, mid-Missouri's source for in-depth news, diverse talk and music of the world. It's not just radio, it's community radio on the web at kopn.org. And this is Speaking of the Arts. Good morning and welcome to Speaking of the Arts on KOPN, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show. My name is Diana Moxham. On this week's show, we spend the whole show in one of my favourite places, the inside of a book. I am delighted that we have two Columbia-based fiction writers on today's show, whose worlds I have been delightfully lost in for the last few days. Later in the show, Kira Harris joins me to talk about the first in her series of fantasy fiction books called Aquilian's Key. But first, we take a trip to Tuttle Corner, Virginia, to meet the endearingly feisty, sassy and tenacious 20 something cub reporter, obituary writer, and murder solver, Riley Ellison, the creation of my first guest, Jill Orr. Jill is a member of the Mystery Writers of America, the International Thriller Writers, and Sisters in Crime. She has a bachelor's degree in journalism and a master's degree in social work from the University of Missouri. She writes a parenting column for Como Living, and her third novel came out this week. Welcome to the studio, Jill. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. It's a delight to have you. So congratulations on birthing your third book. Thank you. Thank you. It is a bit like a birth, isn't it? <laughs> it's ch- is it children or, or books that are more difficult? Oh, definitely uh, actual children. Actual children. Yeah, mm-hmm, for sure. But it, but it is funny because some people will come up and say, oh, I, you know, I liked your second book better than your first. And, and that's like someone coming up and saying, well, I like your son better than your daughter. And it's very awkward because I don't know quite how to respond to that. You know, I, I love them equally. So the third book is called The Ugly Truth, and it's the third book in as many years of your Riley Ellison mystery series. It seems like Riley really wants to be out there in the world. So who do you feel like you're setting the pace or Riley is setting the pace right now? That's a great question. You know, I would say um, Riley is setting the pace. I think, you know, I've I've written I, I wrote two other novels before this series that never went anywhere. But every book I've written has been um, has featured a character who's been in her early 20s. And I think for me, there's something about that time of life when you're just anxious to be who you're going to become already. And um, I definitely feel that with Riley. She just wants to she just wants to know who she's going to be and the kind of person she's going to be already. And she's in such a hurry um, in some ways to do that. But she's still figuring it all out. So I think that I'm following her lead, but I obviously intentionally set her in that that age because it's a time of such growth, I think. And um, that's always, I think, interesting to read about characters who are growing and changing and developing. I feel like my 20s was the time when I worked out what I didn't want to do with the rest of my life. And then in my 30s, I began to hone in like, oh, but this is what I like. Exactly. (laughs) And and, and when you're in your 20s, you have no way of knowing that because you don't know what you don't know. And I think that's why I find it so interesting is because we're all we all feel that way to a certain extent we're all ready to just get out there and do it and and it takes time to figure it out you know some for some people more time than others if you were going to look on the bright side of obituary columns kind of on the chopping block of newspapers it's that more friends and family are writing these really lovely I mean more than just death notices they're writing these really in-depth lovely obituaries tributes to their um, loved ones and and you can find them they're accessible we've all read the ones that have gone viral and and those are fun so even though Riley is an obituary writer we don't really read any of her obits because she's so busy solving crime so without giving the story away tell us what happens in book three what crime is she setting out to solve so in book three um, we we learn I believe at the end of book two that there has been a double murder within the the boundaries of Tuttle Corner and this is getting to be a very dangerous place to live Tuttle Corner is (laughs) for as small as it is there are shockingly you know high level of violence crime. Um, but yeah, so there has been um, a, uh, a woman from Washington, D.C. has been murdered and one of Tuttle Corner's own is suspected of the crime. And this is a friend of Riley's. Her name is Rosalie. She owns the local um, tavern, the kind of the spot that everyone goes for lunch and breakfast. And Riley is just 
you know, super upset about Rosalie being accused of this crime. And um, as the book goes on, we find out more about Rosalie's past and her connection to the woman who was killed. And um, it kind of unravels from there. And the woman is a socialite, so she's high profile. Rosalie is an immigrant. She's French. She's right. I like that. Very nice. Very topical. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and then, yes, so Riley has to work out um, what the truth is and exactly. pursue her friend, exactly. which makes it extra difficult, yes. all the while worrying about her grandfather. Why did you set it in Virginia? Are you from Virginia? No, uh, my in-laws live half the year in Virginia. And when I started writing The Goodbye Line, I was actually in Virginia. And I was inspired by the setting. It is so beautiful there. And, I, and this sounds silly, but honestly, I love the way people talk there. And my my mother-in-law is a docent at one of the um, uh, old homes in Colonial Williamsburg, and she brought me with her. And we met this woman, and she was she inspired the character of uh, Eudora Winterthorn, because I say in the book that she was approximately 127 years old, and as was this woman. And but I mean, I could have listened to her read the phone book. She just just the way she talked and the lilting, you know, sound of her voice and the euphemism. I mean, it was it was just I was like completely captivated by that. So I wanted to try to recreate that. How many people live in Tuttle Corner? That's a really Is good it about question. The size of Columbia? It's smaller than Columbia. Okay. It needed to be smaller than Columbia, but not um, not tiny tiny. I would say I think I estimated at one time at about 20,000. Oh, that is pretty small. Pretty small. That's a lot of murders. It's really shocking, isn't it? I know. It is. I it's don't like think anyone a, should move to Tuttle Corner. No, no. It's like a, that show Murder, She Wrote, Cabot Cove, and we, people would joke about that. It's the same situation. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely have to be careful moving to Tuttle Corner. <laughs> do you have like a mental map of Tuttle Corner? I do. You know, and it's funny. I keep um, sort of gently suggesting to my publishers, like, hey, what if we, you know, a little map drawn and put it at the beginning of the books? Because I love that as a reader. And so far, I've, I've really had no response to that query so <laughs> I guess not but yes I know I know what it looks like how did Riley arrive with you did she just kind of pop into your creative brain one day or did she morph into being over time uh, well like I said you know it was funny when I I was I got the idea to write um, the series about someone who is obsessed with obituaries when I found out about the real life people who were obsessed with obituaries and in my mind they were these very like sort of dark and brooding and moody and they just you know ruminated on death all the time and wore black and this whole thing um, and then as I got to know more about you know what they are really like and not just my silly imagination I, I realized that they're super optimistic and hopeful and then Riley became more optimistic and hopeful as a result of that so she definitely developed over time and does she you said that she's setting the pace in terms of the books coming out but when you when you're writing them now you know her so well does she push your pen or are you pushing her she pushes my pen. I mean, I think at this point, and, you know, I think it's probably this way for a lot of series writers, the characters, I mean, they do what they do, and you just, you're transcribing at a certain point, you know? I mean, I, I start each book knowing who died, and that's about all I know. I don't know who did it most of the time. I mean, I have an idea of, like, maybe it was this person, maybe it was that person, and I'm, I'm almost never right. What my original initial thought is almost never uh, who it ends up being. So it really kind of has a life of its own. It's a weird thing and it sounds strange, but it's it, it happens. Do you do you ever set Riley a task that she won't do? Oh, no, that's never happened. But now now I'm thinking about that <laughs> or any of the other characters. Do you? Yeah. You know, they it's push back. Yeah, sometimes, sometimes they do. Sometimes there's been something that like I have wanted to happen because it would be convenient for me. And then as I'm writing it, it just feels wrong. It's like trying on a shoe that doesn't fit. It just doesn't, it just doesn't work. And I just have to abandon it. So I was always a big fan of the show Castle. Yes. <clears throat> um, but you pretty much knew that whoever was the first character you met in each episode, they ended up being the killer. And what I really liked about your villains is that I never see them coming. And that maybe ties into what you were just saying. I, and certainly in book two, I was 
As surprised as Riley was, I did not think that person was anything other than a tangential character and there they were being the murderer. And it's the same in in The Ugly Truth. I didn't I didn't, you know, see some of some of those components coming either. That is the best thing you can say to a mystery writer, by the way, so thank you. That is always the goal is to surprise the reader, not unfairly, because there are rules you have to play by. You can't just like turn, you know, left all of a sudden with no uh, warning. So yeah, I think I've always said with, with the good byline, starting with the good byline, I have very few readers that say, oh, I knew who it was. And I think it's because I don't know. And when I'm writing it, I couldn't possibly be giving anything away because I don't even know. So I hope at least that maybe that's one. It's it's one of the reasons I don't outline. I mean, also, it just doesn't work for me. But I think the story feels fresher, um, certainly to me as a writer and hopefully to readers when when it kind of just goes along on its own pace. When you're writing mystery and all these things have to uh, tie up, if you're flying by the seat of your pants as you go through it, do you sometimes look back and think, oh, my goodness, I have a dead end here or... Uh, this isn't going to work. So what what happens then? Has that happened? Well, it actually happened when I was writing The Ugly Truth. And um, it's horrible. I'm just going to go ahead and say that. I was writing it. It was about 21 days before the book was due. So it was written. And I was just in the polishing phase, you know. And um, I discovered a plot hole that was so big. It could not be ignored. And it just did not work. And I had to I had to change someone's occupation, which doesn't sound like that big of a deal. But when you start pulling the thread, it goes through every chapter, almost every page, because um, it was a central character. And oh, it was like 25,000 words I had to rewrite. And I had to rewire the whole thing. And it was, it was horrible. Um, but A, bright side. I did discover it before I turned it in, so I didn't look like an idiot to my publisher, hopefully. And I think the story became stronger because of that. But I mean, I don't recommend that, obviously. Um, and so far, it's only happened one out of four times. So <laughs> is the character still in the book? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's Dale. It's Dale. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> that is a pretty major character to have mm-hmm. to rewrite yes, 25,000 words about. That's kind of like rewriting quarter of the book. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. (laughs) Well, actually more, because I think the book ended up being about 70,000 words. Okay. Oh, my goodness. So one of Riley's relationships, which I think is equally fascinating and tortuous, is with the baby mama of her ex-boyfriend, Ridley, the lovely, beautiful Swedish Ridley, and has struggled to maintain a dislike for a character who just really, really wants to be liked. And Riley's struggle to rise above it and be the better person. And it's just as a little knife twist in the heart my heart as a reader. Why would you put Riley through that? It just seems so unfair. Well, I'm so glad you brought this up because that is one of my favorite relationships in the series, actually, I have to say. Um, And that is one thing that sort of grew organically. And I think, you know, another sort of like sub, sub, sub theme that probably no one but me realizes is the idea of like relationships, women, you know, having relationships with other women and how we treat each other and all that kind of stuff. So I put Riley through that because I think it's realistic. And I think that one of the things on and becoming an adult is realizing when you're being petty and when you're just being jealous to be jealous for no reason and struggling to rise above that. Um, we've all had to do that. Hopefully we land on the right side of it. We don't always. And Ridley is, like you said, she's she's kind of like the you know human equivalent of a golden retriever. She just wants to be liked and she wants and she's nice and she's you know got all these great things going for her. So Riley wants to dislike her, but just can't quite do it. So one of the techniques that you use throughout the book, so these short online dialogues that Riley has with a company called Click Through Life, which has lots of trademark registered subdivisions like Personal Success Concierge, Personal Romance Concierge, BestMillennialLife.com, and apps like You're Not the Boss of Me, and my favorite, the Burn Baby Burn app. So would you read the letter to uh, Riley that comes from Jenna B, her Personal Success concierge where she tells her about the joys of the burn baby burn app you got it okay so this is um yeah these are these uh, short communications and i'm going to be reading in the voice of jenna b hey riley okay so it sounds like this kreplock guy is a total nothing burger but i have something i think is perfect for this situation bestmillennialife.com just launched their burn baby burn app for iphone and android it's available in the app store for a one-time fee of 4.99 but trust me when i say it's totally worth it this app allows you to choose from a drop-down menu of frustrations typical in millennial life and then provides you with customizable responses 
Example. Next time the Spencer dude calls you an intern, you simply find underestimate on the drop down menu. Select coworker. Select mail. Select age range 35 plus. And the app will instantly generate a burn like this one. Whatever you pimple hunting kebab basket. The beauty of the Burn Baby Burn app is that although the burns are totally random, people from older generations will think they are millennial code for something and they'll spend forever wondering, or better yet, Googling what it means. How hilarious is that? There's seriously nothing funnier than an old person trying to figure out slang on the internet. It was actually developed by some guy in IT as a joke against his parents, but the people up the food chain at BML.com loved it so much they totally monetized it. Turns out it's one of our biggest sellers. Anyway, in the wise words of Ryan Gosling, hey girl, you need this. XX, Jenna B, personal success concierge TM, bestmillennialife.com. I love it. I must admit, when I was first reading him, I'm like, I don't really get why these are here because I'm not a millennial. It didn't really add to my experience of Riley. And I thought, are you, maybe you're not writing for me. Maybe you're writing for a different generation than me. Or, or were you kind of just in the tiniest way poking fun? <laughs> millennials uh, in the tiniest way in a very loving way and it, it's funny because for the that section came from the bad break and when we were doing um the publicity for it we reached out to a lot of millennial life coaches because they do exist they're real businesses and uh, millennial book bloggers and and one of the things that was so gratifying to me is that they seem to connect with it and get the joke I, i'm never never poking fun in a mean way but just i mean every generation has their things that are you know, we all have our generations have our things that are ridiculous and and just kind of shining a little spotlight on there to have a little fun with it. As my husband says, you're laughing with them, not at them. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> That's the goal. <laughs> so you are with Los Angeles based Prospect Park Books. How hard was it finding a publisher? Did they just did you send it out to you know thousands of publishers and finally one answered or Well, so I think for people who are looking to be traditionally published, you have to get an agent first. And I always say, and this is the truth, the hardest part about the entire process from writing the first word of the first book to sitting here right now has been to get an agent. That was really difficult. Um, it got easier as the as the books went along. I mentioned I wrote two other books that didn't go anywhere. So the first thing I had to do was get an agent for the goodbye line. And once I did that, they actually sold the book fairly quickly to Prospect Park. And so that it was within three weeks, I want to say. But But, you know, again, getting the agent, I mean, I sent out Gosh, I mean, I, all told between the three books, over 100 letters. So it's it's the average literary agent in New York gets 250 letters per week unsolicited from fiction writers who have written complete novels. So, I so mean, what was the secret? I, I wish I knew. I wish I, you know, honestly, I think for me personally, when I when I started writing in the mystery genre, for me, I think that's when it clicked. I, I think that was just kind of like it just was a better fit for my for the way I write. And so so, yeah, it was it was rough. And I always tell anyone who's out there, you know, looking, just do not give up because it's a numbers game. You just have to keep sending out the letters and eventually, you know, have faith that it'll work out. Now, your second book, The Bad Break, went into a second printing just weeks after it was released. Had that also happened with your first book? Was it a complete surprise, the success of book two? It did happen with the first book. I mean, yeah, I think it's always a surprise. I mean, I, I, every time someone reads it or writes me or tells me they liked it, it's a surprise. I, I feel like this is all gravy. I, I just I never expected any of it. So it's all fun. Well, thank you so much, Jill. Jill's new book, The Ugly Truth, the third book in her Riley Ellison mystery series, is on local bookshelves now. And there is at least one copy at the Daniel Boone Regional Library, although maybe it's been checked out now that this is the big week, the big launch week. <laughs> but there are really a lot of copies at Skylark Bookshop, I noticed when you had the launch the other night. So hopefully they're getting towards being sold out. But it's, uh, it's a great read. I thank really enjoyed you. it. Thank, thank you, you so much. A pleasure. Thank you, Diana. <laughs> You're listening to Speaking of the Arts on 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia. And after a short break, I'll be chatting to another Columbia-based author, Kira Harris, about her new book, Aquilian's Key. Don't wander off. 
Welcome back to Speaking of the Arts. My second guest today spent seven years creating a world for her characters to inhabit. Author Kira Harris grew up in Colombia but set out on a life-changing adventure when she was a teenager, heading off to Italy alone when she was just 17 to take a film acting course and then headed to the small town of Wagga Wagga, Australia when she was 18 to get a degree in acting for screen and stage. Along the way, she studied Kung Fu in China, learned magic tricks and worked as a pirate, though not on the high seas before getting married to an Australian sailor and returning to Columbia, at least for now. So it is no surprise that her world of Aquilian is one of pirates, alchemists, nobles and orphans and an invisible mystical element with unparalleled powers. Her debut novel Aquilian's Key introduces us to the city of Westock and two orphaned boys, Felix and Bastian who live simply picking pockets taking from the wealthy and trying to work out what they want to do with the rest of their lives. But on Bastian's 16th or the eve of his 16th birthday his Illumine day their world changes and they are catapulted into a new adventure that will alter everything they thought they understood. Kira, it is such a thrill to have you on the show. Welcome. Thank you so much. It's such a thrill to be here. Thank you. I am completely hooked on the world of Aquilian yeah. and the fate of Felix and Bastion. So please tell me that book two is coming out next week. Oh, I wish. I wish. But it is definitely getting written as we speak. And hopefully next year at the same time, there will be a release for book two. So Aquilian's key is book one in your archives of the Night Watchers. And it took seven years of planning to create the world in which Felix and Bastion, as adventures, they take place. So tell me how it all started and who or what came first. Wow. Well, that was a long time ago now, seven years. So um, it all started. I um, was acting before I started this book, and I got to a point where I just I wasn't enjoying the industry anymore, and I kind of just lost the acting bug and didn't know where it went. And um, my husband and I had just gotten married, and he said, well, what do you want to do now? I've been pursuing it since high school, so it had been my big life thing. And I said, well, I've always wanted to write a book. And so he was very supportive in that and gave me some time to focus on that 100%, which was amazing. But I just sat there and kind of started writing, having no idea where I was going. I had Bastion, I had Felix, and that was pretty much it. And then Gwenna came into play, which are the three lead characters of the book. Um, and I very much wrote this book by the seat of my pants. Um, no plotting. And it, and that's really why it took so long, because A, I didn't know originally where the story was going, and B, because it was my first book and I had no idea what I was doing. So it took a long time to really figure that out. And also within the process of writing this book, I had two children and moved seven times. And one of those was across the country and another one was across the world. So, <laughs> Did you know that it was going to be in the fantasy genre? Was that always the genre you were going to write in? That was always the genre I was going to write in. And it was, it's interesting because I grew up absolutely loving fantasy and fiction and just wanting more than anything else to be in a fantasy world. And it wasn't until I got older and really fell in love with the world that we're in and the reality of our world that I actually felt inspired to create a fantasy one, which is interesting. But a lot of my journey of creating this fantasy world has been diving deeply into our own world and how things in our own world are created and how I can use that to change things in Aquilian. So thinking back on the creation process of Aquilian, did you did you have these two gorgeous characters, Felix and Bastian, and you needed to create a world for them to live in? Or did you have this idea of this world and then and then found them to populate it? Like, what was the order of creation? Well, I, I think the you're characters... playing God here, so what happened on day one? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it was definitely, it was kind of, you know, the chicken before the egg. The, the chicken came first in this instant where I definitely had the characters before the world was fully realized. And this world has continued to become more more realized throughout the entire journey. Um, there's continually new creatures that are popping up in Flora and Fauna and all of these things. And there's so much more that's been created beyond what's in the first book. But um, yeah, at the very beginning, I mean, because I didn't plot any of this out and I didn't sit down and write the world or create it or even the characters before I started, a lot of it was appearing as they walked into a place. 
And so much of it, though, has really just come for myself. Um, as I said, I loved fantasy growing up. And since I've been a kid, in my journals, I'd always put down little things that I'd make up about creatures or, you know, different plants or different things that I'd get inspired from the world around me that I'd see. And, you know, I'd, I look back and I'm like, of course, I've always been a writer. But, you know, it's just something that I've, I've always done. And so when I was creating this world, it was kind of easy because all that stuff was all Already there, and there's been a lot of things that um, have been very dear to me, which just came from my own thoughts, which have created Aquilian, and that's been really fun to be able to bring that out. <laughs> so, set the scene for us. We start with a prologue that goes back in time, thirty years from the main story, and it's here we learn about enchanted objects, a special pair of glasses, and a murder. Uh, we need Riley Ellison to come back and help us <laughs> solve that. So, tell us about the enchanted objects and the incredible power of stardust that we don't even realize, I don't think, for most of book one, but we get introduced to it. Where do we start? So I really am a big fan of magical realism. For me, I love magic, but I like the idea that it could actually exist in our world. So in my fantasy world, I really work hard to try and have a scientific explanation behind all of my magical elements. And in this world, there is an element which is invisible to the eye. And it has a few different names. Um, one of them is Aquilian's Key, which is where the title comes from. And Stardust is, is definitely part of it. And it's an invisible thing that the alchemists use to be able to imbue objects. But nobody really knows. The public doesn't know how these objects work, kind of like technology today where it does amazing things and nobody really knows what's behind that. And it's all protected under law that they can keep secrecy for stuff. And so that is a very, very big part of this world. And I can't really say a lot about it because, as you said, it's very hinted at in the first book and it plays really big parts and it's revealed a lot more later. <laughs> I was reading Arthur C. Clarke's Third Law, which is any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. So I think you definitely employ a lot of Arthur C. Clarke's Third Law. So, so then we flash forward to the city of Westock and we meet our two main protagonists, Felix and Bastian, and they're both orphans. Like I said earlier, they're both good at pickpocketing and magic tricks and they're totally joined at the hip. Yes. But Bastian wants to explore the world <laughs> and Felix thinks life in Westock is pretty sweet and why would you ever want to leave? So knowing a little bit about your desire to travel from a young age, I feel like maybe there's a lot of you in Bastion. What were your inspirations for these two boys? Well, it's interesting, actually. <laughs> My brother read the book and he's, he was like, which one of these is me? <laughs> and, and it's funny. And, and, you know, none of these characters actually came from other people in my life. I mean, there's definitely elements of their stories and of them that have come from other people, but really these three main characters are different parts of myself. And, you know, I know in all my other books, you know, it's it's not gonna be that way, but this being my first one, it just happened where these three very different parts of my personality have come out in these characters. I'm a Gemini, so <laughs> I do have very opposing sides and personalities. So it's been really fun to be able to showcase those because as you said, Bastion and Felix are very different. You know, uh, Bastion, they, they are linked at the hip and they're pulling cons and picking pockets, but Felix is the one who has a silver tongue and he's always the one who's able to pull cons and kind of just convince people to basically give them money. And Bastion is the more quiet one who's got the slick fingers and he can pick pockets very, very well and he can pick any lock and he just kind of slinks into the shadows. So it's, it's really fun because also, you know, Bastion is kind of a romantic and he's completely in love with Gwenna, where Felix loves women, but he's not in love with any women. <laughs> So I, as I said to you, I, I have not finished the book, not because I haven't had time, but I just don't want it to end because I'm going to have to wait a year or more to find out what happens to Felix and Bastian and just to continue to be in the world of Aquilian and hang out with them. So do you do you miss them when you're between books? Very much. Yeah, very much. There's um, was this point when I'd finished the first one and I mean, I've been just working on rewrites and then I was 
all formatted and ready to go, but there was still kind of little holdups that we had to do to get things out. So I had this moment where there was still so much I was doing, but I could not start on the second book. And I just pull out my book and just look at it because I did. I really miss the characters. They've become such a part. I mean, now they're completely outside of myself as individuals, and they really feel like people in the world, kind of like, you know, the having a baby like you were discussing the last interview it's very much like that you know you in the very beginning you feel like they're all yours and then they grow up and go out into the world and you feel like you you know you don't really have as much control over them anymore more because they're their own individuals so let me ask you the same question i asked jill do they push your pen do they do they decide what they're going to do yes very much because once you have those characters fully fleshed out you know, you put them in a situation and a place and they're going to do what they're going to do because that's their background, their personality, their experience, and they wouldn't do anything else. So you have to go with that. I mean, if you go against that, then you're being untrue to the characters and the readers pull you up on that pretty quick, I think. And it just feels wrong because that's not something they do. So yeah, very much. Once those characters are there, they're there. And you get to, you know, put them wherever you want, but then they're going to react the way that they And do. have they ever defied you? Um... I don't know. It's kind of a symbiotic relationship. <laughs> you know, it's, it's very much, it's almost, it's almost like, you know, you're one in the same when you're writing. I think of it very much as playing improv um, when I was in the acting world where when you have that character on, it's, it's just you're one in the same. You know, you are that character. You're wearing that mask when you're writing that character and, you know, you're seeing it kind of from a first person perspective and writing, you know, what they're doing. So let's talk about pirates. They feature heavily in the book. And I love how you honour Talk Like a Pirate Day by writing all their dialogue in pirate dialect. Yeah. <laughs> sounds like they come from the West Country of England. Um, where, where did your fascination with pirates come from? I think it probably started around Pirates of the Caribbean. And I also, when I was a kid, I read Treasure Island and just absolutely loved it. Um, and I've always just been such a fan of of rogues and underdogs and you know, that's that's been my favorite character type. And so pirates are just so wonderful. Of course, you know, real pirates, not so much. But the romantic version of pirates is is so wonderful. Um, the adventure, you know, the camaraderie, as well as just, you know, they drink, but they work hard and, you know, they go after treasure. And yeah, it's, it's wonderful. So anyway, yeah, I think I, I fell in love with that with Pirates of the Caribbean, when I first went to university, I lived in this tiny little share house with a bunch of roommates. And we just had a bunch of pirate parties, and they also loved pirates. And any time that we had any opportunity, we dressed like pirates. And then I got this um, job when I was out of college working in children's entertainment where I got to be a pirate. And that was so much fun. So that's when I had to learn how to talk like a pirate. And um, it's just kind of continued on from there so yeah i soak up anything that i can get that's pirate <laughs> why do pirates all sound like they come from bristol i don't know i mean to me uh, pirates really come from almost an irish kind of culture the sailing culture and also you know i lived in australia for 10 years and i realized after i came back to america how much australia is a pirate culture because everyone who's come over there has come over there on a ship you know besides the aboriginals of course but you have all of these people had to come such a long way and you know if they weren't a sailor beforehand they were by the time they got there and you can really see that in their culture they have that same that kind of mateship and there's a lot of words in Australian culture that actually come from old sailing terms and they have a very big drinking culture and there's a lot of things like that and and um, yeah so and I so I do put in kind of a little bit of stuff from Australia but yeah I do feel like also that Irish culture I worked at an Irish pub as well and it was filled with Irish that were coming to get work in Australia and I just love that I love listening to um, Irish pub rock and old sea shanties you know they're all full of these stories and um, the same kind of feeling as that whole pirate culture and and yeah so I just wanted to I, I don't know I feel like that's kind of where that language comes from and I also I went to Utila a million years ago where <laughs> there's actually you realize there's actually 
places in the Caribbean and islands that are still inhabited by descendants of pirates. And they're very, very white, blue eyes, blonde hair, and they all speak English with this very bizarre accent. And yeah, all that stuff really intrigues me. So that's played a part in creating that. Is it no surprise to anyone that knows you that you married a sailor? Um, I don't know. I haven't asked them about that. It's no surprise to me, of course. <laughs> but yeah, I'm sure it isn't. I mean, our story in itself, you know, I met my husband when I'd just come back from visiting America on a random Tuesday at the pub that I worked at. And he was passing through and in a something for the Navy. And we exchanged phone numbers and talked every night. He was on the other side of Australia for weeks. And then by the time we got together, we were about three months and we were married I think so <laughs> so yeah it all I think it fits very much into my personality all that so you stuff. have a lot of seafaring components to the book did, did your husband help you work out how to write it correctly what the terminology was uh yeah yeah I mean um he definitely helps a little bit with the terminology and he's he's so helpful particularly in just the experience of being on a ship you know, the things that you see out there um, just sound incredible. I wish I could see that. You know, he talks about how glassy the water is when you're just in a place where you're completely surrounded by ocean and it's just still like glass. And, you know, when you're first out there on a ship, the way it feels on your body and you have to get used to it and just how you're in this little space with all these people and the problems that arise with that, all that stuff. You know, it's so helpful being able to chat to somebody who knows that firsthand. How is he acclimatizing to life in Missouri, the furthest state from any ocean? <laughs> he is struggling, I have to say. And every every week we're always discussing whether we're going to return to Australia or not. I actually, I, I didn't grow up here. I grew up in California. Uh, my mom grew up here in Columbia. So we came back here and my mom's family is still here, which of course is my family too. And the rest of my family is in LA and Columbia just kind of suited us better for our time but yeah he's he's really struggling being this far from the ocean and that is his biggest hurdle for sure yeah it is it is hard yeah it's come from near the edge of a country it's yeah. very difficult living in missouri and um, so what i especially love about your world is some of the inventions that you have you have a thing called Everfire, which is a little fire that lives in boxes and never goes out it's awesome. You have these amazing airships, which are like sailing ships, but with a hot air balloon above them. You have uh, the ever rug, kind of perpetual grass that is on the boat that they have sheep eating and it just kind of regenerates itself. Awesome. Um, although I don't think any gardener, any lawn mower <laughs> person would think that. You have the windswept aisles, which are suspended thousands of feet up in the sky. And my absolute favorite are the Send Songs. Yeah. And I'd love for you to read a section from chapter 10 about Send Songs. But first, set the scene for us and tell us what Send Songs are and where Felix is. What are they going to do for him? So um, Send Songs are a mechanical bird which has been created by the alchemists. And it's all designed after um, these birds that actually existed that have been dis um, extinct for a long time. And they're sacred. The original birds are sacred by the order. And these, the reason why the alchemists have recreated them is because they used to be used for sending letters and um, very much like pigeons and that type of thing. But what makes them so unique is these birds are blind and the way that they find things is by basically something's signature vibration, kind of like a radio frequency. So everything, every object, every person has a unique vibration so to speak and um yeah the birds can pick up on that so all you have to do basically is tell them the name i mean in this passage it will explain that so i won't go too into that too heavenly but so felix is on an airship he's far away and he needs to get a letter back to gwenna who is back in Westock? He needs to tell her what's going on go ahead and read the passage for us all right excellent roy took a slender gold whistle from a chain around his neck and held it to his lips Felix watched as he blew it, but there was no sound. Is something wrong? Felix asked, puzzled by the whole business. Not at all. Sensongs hear a frequency that we can't register. That doesn't sound like much of an enchantment, Felix said, while rubbing his hands together to warm them. The frequency is impossible to produce by natural means. Ah, I stand corrected. Felix pulled out his spice leaf case and rolled himself a puff stick. 
The whistle isn't what makes the enchantment so amazing at any rate. It's the birds themselves. Every whistle is linked to a single sun song. Together they make a pair. One is useless without the other, Roy said. What happens to the birds if the whistle's lost, Felix asked. But before Roy could answer him, their conversation was interrupted by the sound of large beating wings. Felix looked up to see a magnificent white bird approaching the ship with a wingspan half his size. Despite its stature, the bird landed gracefully on the ship's railing in front of them. Is that, is that it? Felix asked in wonderment. Roy nodded. Felix was expecting the bird to be dark. The order's depictions of the original sun songs were dark blue-black. This one couldn't have been more luminous. Its feathers were made of white glazed porcelain that shone in the sunlight. It had a white plume on its head and one long turquoise tail feather that curled up behind it. Its beak was a striking metallic gold. The bird started to casually preen its feathers and then turned its eyes on Felix. They were bright lavender with stark black pupils and they stared straight into him as if judging his very soul. He could hear the sound of gearwork whirring inside of it, and he recalled his lessons at the order about the original sun songs. The ancient birds were blind, but they had a keen sense for the vibrations or songs of the universe. All you had to do was say the name of a person or place, and the very sound of the word would match the vibration of the person or place, leading the sun song directly to it. The birds could find anything from anywhere. It's so lifelike. Felix said in odd wonder, his puff stick turning to ash, forgotten in his hand. I love the Sen songs. Please tell me there are lots more Sen songs in future books. Lots more Sen songs. <laughs> and there's a lot more to Sen songs as well, which will all be discovered. This book was really a launching pad into the world, and um, it takes place in a very short time span. So it's, it's virtually three days. And there's so much more in this world and everything behind it that is going to be revealed in future books. Are all the future books planned out? Like, do you know what happens at the end? I'm not exactly sure what's happening at the very end of the series, but I know what's happening at the end of the next three books. And it's, it's, I've kind of gone a little bit from being a pantser, as they call it, riding by the seats of my pants, to a little bit more of a plotter. But the only reason why that's happened is because I'm a mother of two young children, and the majority of the writing that I do is not sitting in front of my computer, but in my mind while I'm playing with my children, and I can't be anywhere else. And so what's happened is, you know, about the last year, I've been finished with the first draft of this book, and I've been, you know, just working on rewrites, but there's been a lot more space for me to think about the next books. So I just kept on writing them in my head and letting the stories play out and seeing what happened. And they did. And they came to very interesting stopping places that I loved. So I've plotted out everything that I've come up with. So I don't forget anything. And yeah, so it's, it's become that the next three books are well laid out. I guess by the end of three books, because things happen so organically in Felix and Bastion, they're kind of dictating to you a little bit what happens that maybe it would be foolhardy to decide what happens at the end of book seven because it may change definitely yeah I think a lot will change up to that point and you know there's so much that's happened in the history of this world which has led to the story that we're reading you know the as you said the prologue is this time in the past history so a lot of that is also things that kind of play into the next few books of how that comes into the present moment and, um, you know, after that, it's all stuff that's very much in the present, which is pretty much why I probably haven't gotten beyond that at this point. Now, you have a fabulous website for the book, masterofmakebelieve.com, which not only has more info about Aquilian, but it also has a section of secret tales about Aquilian, and it has your fabulous storyboards. Talk about the storyboards and how they informed your writing. I'm such a visual person. I, I love pictures. That's probably, you know, one of the reasons why I've been drawn to film um, as well. And I always think about things very visually. And so... For me, I, I like creating picture boards where for the characters, I'll kind of find 
images of somebody that I think looks how I imagine them and, and wearing clothes. You know, I have it in my imagination first, and then I just search for the picture that matches that or as closely to it as I can find and put together these boards. But what happened, which was really helpful for that, is I started getting into social media, which, you know, I was into Facebook, but wasn't really into Pinterest or Instagram. And I was like, oh, man, if I'm going to do this writing thing, I really got to get into that. And so I started getting into Pinterest and was like, wow, this is such an amazing tool for me to use as a writer and totally forgot about the social media side of it and just created a million boards for every place in my world and different character and would just sit on there binging, putting together these images because I would just recognize all this stuff where it was like, oh, that's in Westock or that's in Skyview. And so it's been wonderful how many places in our own world exist, you know, which was exactly how I imagined my world. Um, but also there's so many wonderful things that I find through searching these images, which inspire me as well, or things that I hadn't thought of, or things that make something I'd thought of better. Um, I just think of it as imagination food, you know, so I'll just sit on there and feast for hours. But um, yeah, so I'll create these picture boards. Um, it's important to me because for one, it cements in my own mind exactly what a place looks like and kind of feels like, you know, I can just look back at that picture board and instantly be in that place. And it really gives me a launching board um, when I'm writing about that place. But it also helps me remember things like what's in Bastion's pockets. He keeps a lot of things in his pockets. So I have a whole picture board dedicated to just the items that he has on his person so that, you know, I can quickly glance over at it and know, okay, those are the tools that he has to work with. And if he changes clothes, he also has to move all of those objects. <laughs> well, it's clearly a testament to your power as a writer because I hadn't seen the storyboards before I read nine tenths of the book. And then I looked at the storyboards and it's exactly what I imagined it to be. Amazing. So you had created those worlds with words, and then I saw the pictures, and I'm like, oh, yeah, totally. That's exactly what Bastion looks like, and that's what he's got in his pockets, and this is what Westock looks like, so... Awesome I'm, job. Thank you. I'm thrilled to hear that. That's that's really, really super cool. And tell us a little bit about the secret tales that appear on there. They're like outtakes from the book, partly. Yeah, yeah. So that was another thing I stumbled upon, which I had done because I was trying to kind of start promoting the book before it was actually released. So I wanted to have little clips from the world. And I had all of this writing, which I've discarded along the way. So um, I have these secret tales, which are basically outtakes takes so I've changed the name of the characters and put them up there on my website and on social media so people can see them but they almost took on a life of their own so now I have these actually really fun characters which I'm going to try and find a place for them in my series because <laughs> I've fallen in love with them too and talk a little bit about the cover art you have an amazing cover art on the book and I know there's a story behind it and who is on the cover? Yeah, so that's Bastion on the cover. Um, I, I did want to put all three of the characters on there originally but it got a lot more expensive <laughs> and I thought, well, for the first book let me do one and I'm not even sure the second book if it's going to be all three of them because I've heard people say they like having one character so mm -hmm. we'll see how that goes. But yeah, my cover artist is amazing. His name is Carlos Quivito and he's from Colombia, the country and he's this amazing graphic design artist that incorporates painting as well as digital art and photography and he does amazing works of his own and he's been published in magazines internationally and I just kind of caught him at the cusp of his big break and I'm so thrilled because he's absolutely perfect I think for my series I love his work and he said that he's going to do the whole thing so I'm really excited he's going to do all seven books all seven books <laughs> You have that in writing? Well, I do. He said he doesn't do contracts, but he gave me his word. And we are in constant communication, so fingers crossed. So the final big question is, you know, do you have a date yet for book two? I don't have a date yet, and I'm not putting one on. I mean, my goal is definitely to have it released, I'm hoping, by the same time next year. And um, the reason why I refuse to put a date on it is because I kept putting dates on this book. Like, oh, it's going to be here by Christmas. It's going to be here. You know, and I had ones before that, and I was never reaching my dates because there was so much more to the bookmaking process than I ever knew. Um, and it was such a learning experience that first book. So this one, even though I've got a much better idea of what I'm in for, I know that life always throws things at you that you don't expect. So um, 
Yeah, I'm not giving a deadline just yet. <laughs> well, I, I hope it isn't longer than a year. I don't think I can wait longer than a year. I'll be hunting you down. <laughs> <laughs> See, but that is such a good motivator. And I am so inspired by people wanting the second book that I am definitely going to try and get it out as quickly as possible. Thank you so much to Kira Harris. Her new book, Aquilian's Key, can be purchased from Skylark Bookshop and is also available at the Daniel Boone Regional Library. Thank you, Kira. Thank you so much. You are listening to Speaking of the Arts. And before we hand the airwaves over to Terry gross and fresh air i have a list of arts events coming up that would like to find their way into your diaries at the university of missouri's studio four you can see the children's comedy corduroy the show starts at 6 p.m tonight and tomorrow plus there are two matinee performances on saturday and sunday at one tickets are 16 for adults and 10 for children at the columbia entertainment company the musical comedy hairspray is in its second weekend the show starts at 7 30 tonight and tomorrow plus there is a 2 p.m matinee on sunday and tickets are 14 in Macon, the Maples Rep Company, it's opening night tonight for the comedy The Savannah Sipping Society. The show starts at 7.30 tonight and there's also a 2pm matinee tomorrow and tickets are 24. The Missouri Symphony Orchestra has its Harry Potter meets Luke Skywalker Hot Summer Nights concert at the Missouri Theatre tonight at 8. And at the Missouri United Methodist Church on 9th Street, the Resound Handbell Ensemble from Kansas City are performing a free concert at 7, featuring a program that ranges from Bach to ABBA to folk tunes to Star Trek. Tomorrow night, the musical comedy The Full Monty is on at the Maples Rep Company in Macon. Over the summer, the Maples Rep alternates two different shows at the theatre. So this weekend, The Full Monty is on Saturday night and for both the matinee and evening performances on Sunday. And that alternates with the Savannah Sipping Society. And tickets are cost from $24. At the Blue Note tomorrow night, the Rocky Horror Picture Show returns as part of their Brew and View series. Get your time warp on at nine and have at least $10 in your pocket, Janet. And over at Rose Park, there's a movie screening of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles at 8.30 tomorrow night, the closing event of tomorrow's all-afternoon Pints Pizza and DJ Requiem Party. Sunday night, the Columbia Community Band plays at Shelter Gardens. That concert starts at 7 and it's free. On Monday night, Stevens College Summer Institute has its last performance of the summer and all that jazz, a razzle-dazzle evening, a musical theatre review featuring works from 42nd Street Songs for a New World and Chicago. The show's at the Warehouse Theatre. It starts at 7.30 and is totally free to attend. And at Broadway Christian Church on Monday night, there is a Hot Summer Nights Chamber Recital at 7. Tickets cost 15. And Girl Rilla Theatre will be holding auditions for its next show, the 18th century satire She Stoops to Conquer. Any female-identifying performers are welcome to audition and they're going to be held at Pace Youth Theatre and that's at 6.30 on Monday evening. Tuesday night, the Missouri Symphony Orchestra presents Tales and Scales, a free Hot Summer Nights family concert at the Daniel Boone Regional Library. And at Rose Park, their weekly Movies in the Park continues with The Breakfast Club. That starts at 8.30 and it's free to attend. Next Thursday, the curtain goes up on a new show at the Lyceum Theatre in Ararock. It's the second show of their season and it's the Jukebox jukebox musical all shook up next thursday's matinee opener is at two and tickets cost between 17 and 42 dollars at Talking Horse Theatre, the Pace Youth Theatre has the opening night for its production of 13, The Musical. The show starts at 7 and continues through next weekend. Tickets are 12 for adults and 10 for children. And at the Down Gallery in Sedalia, Columbia-based artist Sarah Gwynn has an opening reception for her new exhibit called Winged Eclipse, Momentary Shadows. And that's from 6 to 8 and it's free and open to all. You have been listening to Speaking of the Arts on 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia with me, Dinah Moxon and my good friend and sound engineer, Mike Hagan. We'll be back next week with more news, views and interviews on the arts in mid-Missouri. Stay arty, Columbia.